Welcome to episode eight of the Outfield Podcast, the social distancing and self-isolation episode as we all deal with the coronavirus, we're all forced to stay inside, but that means we can record podcasts. And on today's episode, I'm so proud to welcome Chris Mosier to the show, transgender athlete, transgender advocate, one of the most amazing athletes you're ever going to talk to, one of the most amazing people you're ever going to talk to about his story of being a transgender athlete and being a transgender advocate, fighting for the rights for people to play sports, fighting for the rights for people to be themselves. And all that he has done is amazing. We talk about this story. We talk about his thoughts on what he does day to day, fighting against some of these horrible bills in certain states, and also talked about the growth of the transgender athlete and the transgender community. We have so much to get to on the show. Let's hear from Chris on episode eight of the Outfield Podcast. to episode eight, as you said, of the Outfield podcast, even though the entire world of sports is shut down because there's a global pandemic outside, when you stay inside, you can still record podcasts. And one good thing when you can record podcasts, and everybody else is basically at home, you can have amazing guests on the show, and there might not be a more amazing guest than I have here today, because Chris was here, transgender advocate, one of the most influential athletes I think I'm ever going to have on this show. Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm nervous. Oh, it's okay. You're 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 good. It's just a conversation. We're we're all good. <laughs> but not often you have conversations with people who literally rewrote the rules for the Olympics. <laughs> well, uh, we I don't know. Let's 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 do it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm excited. First of all, I have to ask, how are you spending your time that uh, we all have to spend indoors now? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's been an interesting time. I think uh, for me, it's not so much the being indoors part that has been challenging. Uh, I have a, a bicycle inside that I can ride. I can do my strength workouts inside. And fortunately, where I'm at in Chicago, uh, we can still get out for runs or for walks outside. So my training, you know, can can kind of stay consistent, but everything else feels so inconsistent right now. All of my speaking gigs uh, and travel plans that I had for, you know, it, this started about two weeks ago, um, moving in all the way through Pride Month now are starting to be impacted. And, you know, for me, that's a real challenge just because as an athlete, I'm not making a ton of money playing sports, but I get paid to talk about playing sports <laughs> and to talk about my advocacy. And so, you know, without that, I've, I'm basically out of work now for, uh, you know, at least three months like so many other Americans um, right now. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's mostly the challenging part, but um, I've, I've been enjoying my inside time, uh, forced inside time, because I, I don't typically take time to step back from the sort of day-to-day grind that, that I have since I don't have a nine-to-five job. I can imagine that because of all that you've done, you very rarely have a chance to even take a step back and realize just how much you've done and how much you are able to do and how much you're going to do has this little break i mean quote unquote break given you a chance to look back on that in any way uh yeah i think the the only time that i really do think about it or reflect on it is when i do podcasts and when i do interviews and people ask me questions about it um i don't i don't necessarily uh typically sit with my accomplishments um 
you know, I think it's, it's awesome to have achieved things and to, to change rules and things like that. But, um, I think I'm more of a future thinker or, um, you know, thinking about what do I need to do now? What little steps, little steps do I need to take today to accomplish my goals? I I guess that's a good way to think about it because at some point you don't want to seem like, you know, oh, I've accomplished everything because then it doesn't keep you as motivated for the future when you know, especially for you and what you're trying to do, you have so much more work to do, which is a shame because you've done already so much work, period. And most people would be like, if I accomplished anything like what you accomplished in the last 10 years, I'd be going, that's a pretty good legacy to leave. But for you, you've got so much more work to do and that's, of course, that's what you're thinking about. And and that's exciting because if you can do what you've done in the last 10 years and build on it, then... Yeah, you know, I do think that you're right. There's so much more work to do. Um, today, actually, we are waiting on uh, news about a law, a potential law in the state of Idaho that would prohibit transgender student athletes from playing sports in the state. Um, you know, this is one of 18 states in the 2020 uh, legislative cycle that have had anti-trans legislation specifically about athletes on the table. And, you know, when you say, like, there's so much more work to be done, we've gotten five of those bills to be killed. But this Idaho one, which is the most outrageous, is very, very very close. close. It's at the governor's governor's desk desk right now, now. Uh, very, very very close close to being put into law. So we're waiting for a veto, hopefully, today. And then regardless of how the outcome of that happens, there are still 12 other states that are trying to pass laws, state laws, that would prohibit transgender people like myself from playing sports. And so, you know, I, I definitely feel like this is a time where uh, there's plenty of work to be done. And I think that's also amazing, right? I was I was looking at your Twitter timeline, just even when this is going on with Idaho last week and going like, wait, shouldn't there be other things that are going on right now that might take precedence over this? And oh, just, especially right now. <laughs> it, made, it made me laugh when I, when I saw that, but that's what I, when I think for you and what you have to do, this is an every single day thing. There's another state. There's another place we have to go. There's another person we need to talk to, you know, to mm-hmm. push this forward. And that's why, I guess, now that you think about it, that's why you can't really look back as much because there is so much more work you have to do because these are people's livelihoods that are at stake. And you've been one of the most vocal advocates, I think, in anything that I've ever seen. And it is amazing to just even recount some of that work. But I want to start, as I always do, with people with their lives and where they grew up, their family life. And with you, that story is interesting because I have never actually been able to ask any transgender person about their, their, their growing up story and their coming out story and how unique and challenging, but how rewarding it is to see how you've gotten to where you've gotten to now. So talk a little bit about that first, because that's a lot that I don't know about you. And I've done a lot of research, as much scholarly research as I've ever done <laughs> college preparing for this interview to make sure I got everything down pat. Uh, but in terms of your life growing up, what was it like? And, you know, I read somewhere that you knew your gender identity was different when you were four. And how do you get to where you got to now from the difficult times you inevitably had when you were growing up? Yeah, I think, you know, as a as a child, I had a strong sense of myself and I had a lot of confidence in myself. Uh, but over time, what happened was the adults around me sort of uh, told me that I was doing it wrong, that, you know, that, that four-year-old story, um, 
I remember it being a hot summer day and all of the kids in the neighborhood running around with their shirts off. And my aunt pulled me around the back of the house and said, you can't run around like this with your shirt off. Little girls don't run around with their shirts off. And I didn't understand at that time the difference between me and the little boys in my neighborhood on that hot summer day. And, you know, I think as I think back, I just have, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of experiences like that, that I can recount where I was doing what felt very natural to me and what felt very authentic and um, comfortable for me. And then adults in my life were saying, you can't do this because that's not what a little girl does. So, you know, I, even though I didn't have the words to describe or the language to under, you know, to describe, um, my gender identity and I didn't have a strong concept of gender. Um, you know, I, I knew very, very clearly who I was. And I think the trouble for me became when I, um, sensed the disconnect and people started addressing me in a way that wasn't comfortable. And there was really nothing I could do about that. Like say, you know, like people had to call me she and her because they didn't know what else to call me based on how I was assigned and how I was expected to behave. But I, I realized, uh, that that didn't feel as comfortable for me and I just didn't know how to tell other people that. So I, I can't imagine like even hearing that story, you know, cause you're at age four and mm -hmm. I, I think everyone can even like, no matter what story we have in this podcast, if you know, you know, and you're the only person mm -hmm. who can determine that. And you know that at age four, and that first story, and you could have, tell hundreds more that are just as powerful, but that, that says everything, right? Like, yeah, I, mean, that yeah. I think there is no better story to describe the experience of somebody like you than that story. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's also important to say, like, there's not, you know, there's not just one way to be a little boy, not just one way to be a little girl, but our parents and our coaches and our aunts and uncles and grandparents, uh, you know, tell us that there is a certain way to behave based on stereotypes, even if those people don't fulfill the stereotypes themselves. Right. So it's, it's funny that like, you know, you could have, uh, an aunt who hunts deer, right? <laughs> like, like you could have an aunt who hunts and camps, but would still tell a little girl that she needed to be more feminine in order to fit in. And so, you know, I think there's there's the sense of you can see the generational change. The way that our grandparents were raised is very different than the way our parents were raised versus the way that we were raised versus the way that, you know, somebody who's in junior high right now is being raised. Um, that change is slow and it happens over time, but there are certainly a wave of saying like a recognition of the stereotypes that we once believed to be true of women being housewives and men being the, the bread earners, you know, like all, like those, that's just not true anymore. And, uh, I think as people's understanding of gender and gender roles and gender expression has changed over time. So too does the ability to be more authentic with yourself at an earlier age. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I didn't feel like I had the ability to do that at four or 10 or 15, even though I had a sense of myself. I didn't have the words for it, and I didn't feel like I had the support for it either. And how would you have? Because if if we're correct, how old are you? I'm 39 now, so and so 39. I've been so out for almost 80s, 10 years. Early 80s, early 90s. How how mm -hmm. the heck would anybody know? Like, yeah, I mean, we're talking at a time when I mean, even just my very limited still knowledge of the history of this community. 
we're nowhere in the late 80s, early 90s. So imagining how much further along that the, that the transgender community, there'd be nothing. So how would you even be able to comprehend what you're going through? Because there's no one out there that you could look up to or be have an example to give you the way forward as we have now. But that, that to me is also a, another amazing part of the story is you dealt with this and you came out at 30 and that's a lot of weight to be living with for that long. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it was really just for a couple of years before that, that I had the terminology and really sort of understanding and then, you know, realized that, that what I was learning about fit my identity and it resonated for me. And then it was the, the process of figuring out like, okay, how, how, how do I, is it possible to be transgender and be out? Uh, is is it possible? And can I still play sports? And can I still keep this job? And will I still be in this relationship? And you know, it took me years to to work through those things too. And the, actually, the biggest thing was playing sports. That even though I knew my identity was transgender, I delayed my transition for about a year and a half because I didn't know if I could continue to play sports. Um, and you know, there were all of these factors to really think about as I had this understanding of myself. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about sports. So, yeah, I mean, it's amazing to be a triathlete anyway, and you are, but let's talk about your sports history. So you were doing this for so long. Was this your escape from everything that you were dealing with in life when you were playing sports and you were doing these things because you didn't have to be told well, girls don't do that X, Y, and Z because girls playing sports was enough of a breaking of stereotypes anyway. Yeah, I mean that's very true, and I think it didn't it didn't start off that way. It, it certainly started off as that four year old, that five year old in the backyard playing t ball with the kids in my neighborhood, then playing baseball, co ed baseball, mm -hmm. um, and playing basketball. Those were my first loves as a child was basketball and baseball. Um, you know, I, I think I definitely was attracted to it and drawn to it because it was a the place I felt the most like myself. And it was the space where I was not criticized by my peers, at least on my team, uh, for my expression and for my um, how how I existed in the world. Like who I was fit very naturally in sports. And so no matter how people thought about me off the court or the field, they appreciated me as a teammate, as a leader, and as an athlete when we were playing sports. So I, I certainly recognized that at a young age, and I was pretty good at sports and you know felt like I had some value, uh, some worth in, in being an athlete. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that was really what caused me to go all in on it. And then later, uh, certainly in high school, sports became a bit of an escape. And so me being able to play sports allowed me to keep my mind off of doing any sort of investigation of who I was as a person or what my identity was or how I could exist in this world. Because sports was the place where you felt that people were going to accept you no matter what, because as at the yep. point, you're already breaking the stereotypes if you're a good athlete. People will recognize you as a good athlete. Even at that time, people would recognize good athletes no matter their gender identity or whatever maybe. So how did you get from being a kid who loved baseball and basketball to being a, a pretty well-renowned triathlete? 
Yeah, so I uh, played volleyball, basketball, and softball in high school. And when I was going to college, I wanted to play basketball and decided not to because I didn't want to be on a girls team. Um, I didn't know that at the time. I made a bunch of other excuses, but that was really what it was. So I played a bunch of co-ed sports in college, but I really missed being a competitive athlete. And when I was done with college, I started to run uh, individually more for my own health and because it was something that I could do without having to go into a locker room, without having to be on a quote-unquote women's team. I could just run by myself. And so I started off running and was working my way up in some running races, working my way up in distances of running. So I did 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon. I did an ultra marathon and um, you know, decided I didn't want to run any longer. Uh, so what, what could be my next challenge? And I bought a bike. I taught myself how to swim and did my first triathlon. And that was really how I, how I got into triathlon uh, I won my category in the first triathlon I ever did. So I thought, okay, maybe this is my new sport. Um, but at the same time, I was too embarrassed to tell people that I won because it was in the women's category. And so it was really, you know, a very interesting moment of finding a new sport and also finding out a lot about myself and my identity and it being the sort of catalyst for having to make some sort of determination about what I will do moving forward because I, couldn't imagine continuing to live um, in this way that I had to I had to keep my successes a secret. Did it feel like your successes just personally weren't as valid because you knew something about yourself that no one else knew and it felt that it's not that it gave you an advantage. I don't want to say that, but did it feel like did it feel like to you as you said like your successes were sort of they weren't as what's the word they didn't they weren't as i don't want to say meaningful because that's not it because you still won a ton of races and it doesn't matter what you are if you're winning races and triathlons and you're a pretty incredible athlete regardless did it feel like did the victories feel a little bit more hollow because of that yeah i think that's a good way to put it i mean i think that i uh didn't feel as good about it myself because i didn't feel like i was in the right space and i didn't feel good talking about it because i didn't want people to identify me as a woman and so it was really um, an eye-opening sort of position to be in of, yeah, I, I guess that, you know, that's a good way to put it. It did feel sort of, sort of hollow. So when you get to this point and you're doing incredibly well, but all these victories feel hollow, what is the major catalyst that says, okay, I can't live this way anymore. I have to find the answers to these questions that I have. I have to see what I can do to get out of this. This, this mental space that I'm in, these challenges that I'm facing, was there any one catalyst or was it just an accumulation of moments that got you to the point where you said, okay, I got to do this now? Uh, it's definitely an accumulation of moments, but there was one moment on my birthday, uh, turning 29, that I uh, had sort of this breakdown in a restaurant on my at my birthday dinner with my partner. And, uh, you know, the the catalyst for that was just that the waiter came up and said, Hey ladies, can I take your order? And it was just that statement on, on that day, um, in, you know, a moment where I'm supposed to be celebrating my existence, uh, that put in perspective for me that I, it didn't feel like a, an existence worth celebrating. And it didn't feel like, you know, the, the, the breakdown was I left the restaurant crying. Uh, it was, you know, 
who knows how long of of uncontrollable sobbing, uh, you know, and crying in public is something already that was a, a shameful thing for me. So it was really a very uh, impactful moment. And when I finally could talk and, and say what was wrong, I just said, I never thought my life would be like this. Like I could not imagine having another birthday, living the life that I was living. I, I honestly didn't think that I would be there for my next birthday if I continued to live that life. So it was really a moment that um, I was like, you know, you have to, you have to make a change uh, because you literally will not be here. Like, I, and in a lot of ways, I felt like, and I say this to to parents, you know, I get a lot of parents who ask me um, how to support their trans kids or like, what would you do if your kid was trans? That sort of question. And for a lot of people, I say like, you have two you have two choices. You can either have a transgender child or you can have a dead child. You know, because it literally is a matter of life and death. Like, I don't think I would have been here for another year if I not had not transitioned. And in, is it a bad time to mention that you and I share the same birthday? <laughs> no, that's amazing. Really? I think you said that's that. <laughs> I think you said that when I came out, when I did it on my birthday. I think you said it to me, like, birthday buddies. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that, yeah. I, you know, for I, a long time, I... Was like, Chris was here <laughs> sending me a tweet, like, really? I, I, I never... I never told people when my birthday was. Um, I, I had some like awesome birthday parties when I was a kid, but at certain at a certain point, like in junior high and high school, I just decided that I didn't want to tell people when my birthday was. And that, you know, looking back on it now, I can say that's probably because that was the time period where I started to notice that like I didn't feel worthy of being celebrated. I didn't want people to pay attention to me. I didn't feel like I was showing people all of who I was. And so, you know, it's interesting to kind of make that correlation. And to to like hate and despise my birthday for so long. I, I mean, I wouldn't even tell people my astrological sign because I didn't want them to narrow it down to like <laughs> when my birthday was. Well, the good news I is just, if you're born on August 22nd, you can give them two answers and both are plausible. So right, 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 exactly. Which, which is uh, the only thing I know about astrology. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, it, it's it's interesting that you you mention it this way because I never would have even put that together that your birthday would be such a, a terrifying day because you it's the day you're supposed to celebrate yourself, the day when we all get one day out of 365.25 to celebrate ourselves. And it's the day where you can't celebrate yourself because you don't feel like you're even being half the person you need to be because you can't be. And, and when you tell the story about going to your birthday meal and having hearing that, and that being the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, it, it's 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 a story that everybody can relate to. It's sympathy, but the empathy, I think, that's when it changes, right? When people hear a story like that, they go, "Now I get to see what people go through." Because when when we talk about transgender people in general, most people have never met one, never interacted with one, so it's a distant concept. It's a it's something that is not relatable to them but then you tell stories like that and instantly you see the humanity in a story like that and you realize i, I don't no, so much gender identity doesn't matter this is a human being who is going through mm -hmm. something that is uncategorically you know as painful as you're ever going to go through and that's when i think the the opinions and the the feelings change it's when you see the humanity in a story like that and i think every transgender athlete every transgender person there's a story like that, and that is when I think the way that we view 
the community or the, these people and their stories change, especially if you were somebody who has never seen this before and has never mm -hmm. been, you know, not, I don't want to say exposed to it, but has never interacted with these kinds of stories. That's when you go from the, oh, or whatever opinions that you might have, certain people, to going, well, these are human beings and I cannot stand to see other human beings live like this. Yeah, it's really interesting that there are so many people who have these sort of stereotypes and such strong opinions about trans people and specifically about transgender athletes. And we've seen that, like I said, you know, 18 states having laws uh, or bills on the table trying to prevent trans athletes from participating in sports, when in most of those states, there are no trans athletes participating in high school sports that are out. You know, it's, it's a, it's a non-issue. It's a not problem. And it's really interesting to see, you know, the people who are perpetuating the fear and the stereotypes about who trans people are. You'll see it frequently where people will use one picture of a trans athlete who is, uh, you know, gender nonconforming, so to speak, or not stereotypical of of the gender with which they identify, and they will use that as fuel against the trans community. Um, which again is problematic because there's not just one way to be a man, there's not just one way to be a woman, and there's not just one way to be a trans person. You don't have to look a certain way, uh, you don't have to act a certain way. And I think it's, you know, the because we are so rooted in these really old school stereotypes, uh, it's it becomes uh, not just a problem for trans people, but also a real danger for trans people to exist in, in certain states, in certain locations, because of the lack of understanding and the lack of education uh, that people have about who trans people are, what it means to be trans, you know, and, and a lack of personal experience. Like you said, the reason I was able to challenge the International Olympic Committee policy on trans athletes and get it changed is that I was a name and a face of a person who was like, hey, this actually doesn't work. <laughs> this policy is bad, and let me tell you how it impacts me. But a lot of these policies and these laws and these bills are are made without a trans person at the table, without lawmakers or people even knowing a trans person having any sense of their experience. And so we will continue to be in this cycle of trans people being um, harmed and victimized and discriminated against and stereotyped unless people get to know us and get to know our stories. And that's why you see so many great stories. And we're going to get to them because I want to talk about a couple of them with you in a bit. But for me, I think how we get to where we get to when we're dealing with 18 states having laws banning transgender athletes, which, again, what, what's the point of that? There aren't any in these states because the climate is already so hostile for them, period. It's, again, I think it, and you can tell me whether I'm wrong here, it is the, the concept of gender to these people is so baked in and gender roles is so baked in. It seems like a constant. It seems like something that hasn't changed. And then somebody comes along and says, no, it's actually different. And they're going to go, well, how is it different? Show me. And, you know, they're already set in their ways. And when you not attack, but when you to them, it's an attack when they perceive that their fundamental worldview, something that is so basic as a man or woman and those defined roles are not really defined anymore. They go into their fight or flight reactions and they don't go, well, wait a minute, let's talk to these people and see what their experiences are. They go, well, no, my worldview, my world is under attack and I have to fight back because if my world is under attack, then what else isn't you know, real? Or, again, this is me trying to rationalize <laughs> how people are thinking when people who are not thinking rationally, which is not something you should do, but it's how I've come to try to figure this out 
And yeah. I don't know whether I'm right or not, and you are probably a much better uh, arbiter of that than I am, but th does that make sense? Because that's the only way I can see a logical step from getting from, you know, from where they were to, oh, we have to ban transgender athletes because, um, uh, well, women are going to not be able to compete in a competitive field or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, th I would say that you're pretty close, and I just want to be clear. I, I think I, I misspoke and just want to make sure that I that I clarify that. So 18 states had bills on the table, um, not necessarily laws yet. And so Idaho today is actually um, – and th this will be out by the time we publish this, but today is is making a decision on whether or not to pass into law their bill. Uh, but everybody else is, is, is in still some state of not law yet, which is great because it still gives us a chance to fight. But I think you're absolutely right that these stereotypes about gender are so baked in are there's there you know they're so part of our experience of growing up and and that has changed over generations our our grandparents were taught about gender roles in a very different way than our you know middle school students are right now and people who are that far away from the reality of youth sports for example today um, shouldn't be making the rules and the policies without the input of the young people. Um, you know, there are, I would say, many, many uh, fifth graders who have an LGBTQ student in their class who at fifth grade, fifth grade is what, 10 years old, knows about their sexual orientation or their gender identity. It is, you know, sort of unimaginable for me to think about what that experience is like as a young person, but that's what the reality of the situation is like today. The problem is not the young people. The problem is not the, the kids who know that they are gay or know that they're trans. It's the, the people in power. It's the lawmakers. It's the coaches. It's the parents of opposing players and teams, you know, that, that have these stereotypes about, uh, LGBTQ plus people in general that negatively impact our ability to participate. And, you know, what you said about people kind of being stuck in their ways is really true. There are people who have these really, really hard opinions that, you know, and I think that you nailed it. If I was to tell them uh, a different truth than the truth that they know to be true about trans people, it would disrupt their entire worldview about so many things. And I saw this when I went to Idaho recently to to meet with lawmakers to try to get them to vote no on HB 500, which is Idaho's bill that will be announced today. Um, what I saw was that regardless of what I said about my experience playing girls sports, about the sexism that I faced as a young girl in sports, about how people even before I was transgender would assume that I was a boy because I had a good jump shot – even though I had hair, you know, down to the middle of my back in a ponytail and wore the same uniform as the other girls on my team, you know, I would get questioned, is that a, is that a guy or a girl because I was a good athlete? And so, you know, there's so much sexism that exists in sport about who is capable of being a good athlete, about who we allow to be a aggressive and strong competitor and we see that even, you know, any cisgender woman today who is competitive and and super athletic and, you know, muscular or strong, uh, built for their sport, you know, they're questioned about whether or not they are woman enough outside of sport. And so, you know, it really just kind of 
there's so much to unpack there about the sexism that exists uh, and, and also about people just being really rooted in their views and not willing to see the reality of today and allow their opinions to change. You know, and it's really funny how the number one reason why a lot of these bills are even on the table is because we have to protect female athletes, which you wouldn't protect them anyway, because you, if you had a chance to defund Title IX, some of these states probably would. It's, and it's really ironic. It's the most mm-hmm. backhanded support of, of, of women's <laughs> sports I've ever seen. You know, when, yeah. when, you think about, when you think about it that way, which has always made me laugh, and the, the irony of the situation is it's never lost on people like me who, are just, who just are befuddled at the whole reasons why these things happen. But we'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit because I want to get back to you. Uh, I'm reading the, the New York Times article. This is from 2011 for your first race or one of the first races when you, after you're out and you're transitioned, and the, the, the headline was for transgender triathlete, a top finish in New York is secondary. And I want to get to what life <laughs> is like. Just, uh, and, and it's a great article, and it still holds up nine years after it was written. Thank you, Wikipedia, for still having these articles and not making me go to the Wayback Machine for them. Uh, <laughs> when, you, when you think about what you were like before to what you are like now and you've competed at Olympic trials, you've done all of these amazing things. Like how big of a difference? And I, and I think it's, I'm even going to understate it. Like how big of a difference was it for you from just the moments of being successful before to being successful after you transitioned? Yeah. You know, that article is really special and unique because I do think about it all the time and I was not happy with it when it came out. I was really disappointed and kind of hurt by it because it really painted me as a middle of the pack guy. And, you know, there was a lot of sexism that that reads through in that article of saying a trans man could never be competitive with men. Even the headline, right? A top finish is secondary. Like we like I, I took it as a secondary because, oh, this person has gone through something that's so amazingly traumatic that just getting to this point is good enough to where I don't care where I finish. I accomplish something incredible no matter what. Now that's how I viewed it. That's how mm-hmm. 2020 me views it. I don't know how 18 year old me would have viewed that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, me I is not 26 year old me, but that's how I viewed the headline. Yeah. Where, and, and I think you viewed it in another way and completely understandable because I bet a lot of people probably viewed it that way. Yeah, and I think that you know, just me being myself wasn't good enough. That's not that's not an accomplishment, right? Like it is, it is because it took a lot for me to get here, and it took a lot of um, going against resistance to get to there to that point to to be able to compete as male. But for me, as a competitive female athlete, you know, there was there was never a question in my mind of of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a competitive male athlete, and I didn't know if it was possible right so like when i look back on you know that time and thinking about before transition and, and thinking about today i mean i'm i'm in, i'm incredible i'm incredibly proud of my uh resiliency and the persistence that i've had to continue to show up in the face of adversity but i think that's what makes a great athlete in general, regardless of your gender identity, it's showing up every day. It's being consistent. And so when I think about either my sports or my advocacy work, you know, the consistency is what I really value. Uh, the persistence and being resilient in the face of challenges. Uh, and I think that both of those things, you know, my advocacy work and my athletic career really go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, they completely do because you need the same sort of skill set in order to be 
really good at both. You need to be persistent. You need to be determined to do whatever mm -hmm. it takes to take the next step because the next step is going to make you better and make you more effective. And especially in advocacy at this point, you're, you're dealing with people who probably don't want to deal with you. You know, you have to be <laughs> annoying, you know, and, and as you, as you've noticed, that's probably uh, something that is not going to change. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. It, in some places, it's probably easier to deal with this than in others. But I, I also want to, we have to get to uh, changing the rules for the Olympics, even though we're doing this on the day when the Olympics were officially postponed for a year, which was the right decision. Absolutely. Which is, which is neither here nor there, but it is an important mm -hmm. decision. We were in Olympic trials earlier, unfortunately, you tore your meniscus, but now you're going to have a better chance, as everybody will, with the Olympics mm -hmm. postponed a year. How do you even get to the point where you have a sniff of thinking about changing the rules for the Olympics and how <laughs> transgender athletes are, are treated because I could never imagine going up to the most corrupt, well, second most corrupt sporting organization on planet earth behind FIFA and saying, Hey, something's wrong. You know how the Olympic committee is. They don't want to change anything. They think their ways are great, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You were able to change it. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was really more advocating for myself than it was thinking about big uh, systemic change. You know, it was really, I was in a position where because of their rule, I would be unable to compete in the world championship, which I qualified for. And I qualified under the same set of criteria as any other athlete, as any other, you know, any of the men on the, on team USA. And, you know, I thought there's no difference in how I got here. Um, and, th and there should be no reason that I couldn't take my spot on Team USA uh, just because I'm trans. And so that was, you know, me challenging them to remove, uh, and the challenge was to remove the surgery requirement from their policy, the old policy for the International Olympic Committee all the way up until late 2015, early 2016, when the announcement of my challenge came out was that any transgender athlete who wanted to compete in world championship races or the Olympics or anything governed by IOC had to have a full uh, lower surgery, uh, internal and external genital modification in order to play sports. And so that was the basis of my challenge of saying, like, this should be, this is not necessary for any athlete to modify their body in a way that they don't want to uh, just to play in sports, you know, that was, it was really just me trying to advocate for myself, um, also with the knowledge that, you know, in doing so, I would be able to open doors for other athletes. And, and you definitely did. Uh, again, why policies are on the book like that, you don't realize why or how they even get there until they're there and people notice it. Like, did you go up and people like, oh, really? That's what we have on the books? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I don't think it was really on anyone's radar because at that point, still no trans people had been in the Olympic trials, had, you know, no out trans people had been in the Olympic trials, no out trans people had been Olympians. And so it was really something that they created on the books for some reason and never had to enact. And so, or it was like just enough to keep people away from playing sports. And so, you know, I really think there was a little bit of surprise of like, yeah, no one initially could even say why that policy existed. Um, why, like, why was that? that? Happens, and you can even get the IOC to go like, oh, oh, uh, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> you've, done a, you've done a really impressive thing when you can get the IOC to almost immediately admit that they screwed up, which is hard to do because they will take, again, 
how long did we go before they actually postponed the Olympics? They were like, oh, we're going to keep doing it. And then people are just like, no, you're not. They, mm-hmm. they kept on going until they had no other choice. So to get you to do what you did almost immediately is amazing because that, that's just from like a, a bureaucratic sense as opposed to even just the amazing things you've done for other transgender athletes. But I mean, to me, it, it, it almost comes with like a twofold accomplishment. Just, just knowing what I know about that organization and knowing how inflexible they can be to do what you did was, is pretty yeah, I mean, it was, it was amazing on two levels. It, it was, it was definitely a matter of having a name and a face of a person to put to this policy and say, this doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I think the policy would have stayed as it was for a very long time until a person came forward and said, yeah, I'm an athlete. Here's what happened. Here's how I qualified and here's why I can't compete. And, and it doesn't make sense to, to have this be the deciding factor. Now with that, I have to say it certainly, uh, was a moment of enacting male privilege and probably white male privilege in me being the person to challenge that policy. Um, because, you know, going back to that New York Times article, nobody thought that I would be a threat. Nobody thought that I would, you know, be competitive. And even when I made Team USA, it was a sort of a shrug and saying like, okay, but he's not going to do well, right? Like, um, we maybe we should just let him play. I really strongly feel that if it was a trans woman in my situation, who was challenging the policy that it might not have had the same outcome. Uh, And that just goes to show the bigger picture of how trans women are discriminated against, not only more in life in general, but certainly exponentially more in sport. I I don't even want to imagine that. (laughs) And I didn't even think about it until you brought it up. And now that you brought it up and you're hundred percent correct. Wow. I, I, Mm -hmm. I legitimately never thought about it like that until now, but I want to get to some other stories of transgender people that have been uh, really, really powerful. I think the one we're all going to talk about is, is Zia Wade and how amazing that story is. And my opinions on it are not really worth anything. Yours are. And that story has, for, the long, for, for a while, as we, we started to get more and more of that story, how amazing was it for you to hear that story and to hear what Dwayne Wade was saying? about his daughter and how he supported his daughter, but not just how he supported his daughter saying, I need your help, everyone. We don't know where we're going with this, but we're going to have to learn and you're going to help us learn. I think that was more incredible to me than almost any other part of that story. But what did you think about it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, to have someone in that high profile position and and especially having it be an athlete, you know, we've seen other uh, high profile people have transgender kids. But for it to be uh, somebody who is in sports, you know, that adds a different perspective to it. And I also think there is this sort of racial component that also is super important because black trans women are the targets of violence, you know, more than I am as a white trans man. And it, it to have this position of Dwayne Wade saying, you know, like, I need I need the help of the community. We're here for our child. And you know, I'm going to support and love my kid no matter what. I mean, to see how quickly that happened and how quickly he went out and, and talked to media about it, I think it just makes um, it makes a really strong uh, case for allies, you know, and in saying, like, we can't 
be in a position where we continue to question kids the way that I was questioned when I was younger. Like I, I, I look at that situation and I think if I was Zaya, right, and and the, I had parents who just like full on supported me when I was that age, what would my life be like today? Like I can't even imagine it. It's so incredible. And so I think it's just a it's it is a turning point for us. It's a it's a moment where, um, where we have a, a huge sports personality, uh, sports legend who is talking about family in a, in a different way. And I think it's going to reach a lot more people. You know, I, I, certainly um, Caitlyn Jenner coming out was a big moment for the trans community, um, regardless of, of what people think about her and her politics and her reality shows and all of that. Uh, the public awareness that she brought to trans, to trans women and to transition, uh, you know, good and bad, it certainly raised the awareness. And I think what Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union are doing by being so supportive of Zaya is sort of on that level, if not past that level, of bringing more attention and a different perspective to the trans experience. You know what's interesting? And it just popped up in my head. And again, maybe this comparison is not good, but I think of Michael Sam when he came out and what happened when he came out and how if that situation was redone in 2020, it would look a lot different. With Caitlyn Jenner, there were things that happened that obviously, you know, that we would redo if we could do it again. And so when I think about people coming out in 2020 now, not necessarily football players, but any athlete, Mm -hmm. right, that are coming out as gay in 2020 or bisexual or whatever, it's a lot different than what Michael Sam did. And now transgender athletes and transgender people coming out are going to look a lot more like Dwayne Wade supporting his daughter as opposed to Caitlyn Jenner. So does, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think you're right. But also I would say, you know, none of this could happen today without those folks who put themselves on the line before. So, you know, Caitlin, Caitlin absolutely laid the groundwork for any trans person to come out today by elevating that profile and by, you know, helping to um, at least bring some awareness to it. And, you know, again, I, I, I say this with like some uh, caution because there are varying views on her politics and and uh, things that that she's done as a person of privilege, right? Of of ha- having the ability to have a glam squad and and things like that, which are not necessarily part of the daily experience of trans folks in in, in large no. population, right? But um, but you know, for each of those people, like Jason Collins and Michael Sam, and you know, everybody who's come out maybe after their their athletic career, they are laying the groundwork for the next gay athlete or bisexual athlete to come out in men's professional sport. So I think, you know, there, it, it won't, it shouldn't look the same as it looked to even two years ago. Um, especially not the same as it looked eight years ago, for example, mm. because we are constantly evolving and because we're building off of our, our experiences of, you know, every person who comes before them. And I can think now just even the, the Dwayne Wade story, it looked with his, with his daughter, it looks even a little bit different than some of the transgender athlete stories I saw on like E60 or outside the lines because there, there are a couple of them and I think Mac Beggs is probably one of the most visible that, mm-hmm. that story is, is amazing when you think about that and other people like even just the people that I've interacted with I think of Kim McCauley who is a soccer writer at SB Nation who's an amazing writer I think mm-hmm. of uh, Nikki Bandy another soccer writer it's amazing that we've seen a couple of soccer writers and what, they, what they've gone through and how important it is for them 
you know, and how important it was for me just to see stories like this and to see right. how they're, they've been, you know, treated. People will, you know, read their work in the same way that they've read their work before and they'd read the work of any other writer. You know, that might not have happened all that long ago. And that is, it's an incredible, just to think about how much progress we've made, not just with you, but even in the last, like, couple years. And there's yeah. still a long way to go. And I always joke with people, like, we went from absolutely the center of the earth to, like, <laughs> we're not where we need to be yet. Because you couldn't get any lower than where they where the entire LGBT community was and where it is now is light years ahead, but it still shows you how far we have to go. But those are the stories that, that, that stick with me. And is there any one transgender athlete story that sticks with you as being the most powerful? I think the Zia Wade story is the one that broke through, you know, the, the cultural barriers because it's Dwayne Wade and Dwayne Wade is a transcendent athlete. But is there mm -hmm. one that, that stuck out for you the most? And it might not be one that as many people have heard about, or it might be one that isn't as famous, but is there one that to you is the most powerful considering what you've gone through? Yeah, you know, before I transitioned, I didn't see trans athletes competing. Uh, you know, even before my transition, I knew of Renee Richards, uh, but it didn't, her story didn't resonate with me in, in the same way that a trans man, uh, a, a story of a trans man might have resonated with me. Um, since I've come out, I've had the opportunity to be sort of the person that trans athletes go to, to talk about their stories and to get help. And so it's been awesome to sort of help mentor people through their coming out process and dealing with the media and figuring out what it means to be a professional athlete and be trans, uh, and, or to be a collegiate athlete or high school athlete. You know, I think Mac Begg's story is certainly one of the most, um, prominent recently because it highlights a lot of the problems with, uh, high school policies in making an athlete compete according to their birth certificate. Um, just for your listeners, real quick, the uh, Mac Beggs was a trans boy in Texas, and he was forced to compete with girls in wrestling because they wouldn't allow him to compete with boys. He was assigned female at birth, but he was already transitioning to male, and he ended up being a two-time girls state champion uh, in, in what was, you know, he didn't want to compete with girls. Um, I think the other big story that's super important and prevalent right now, and it's the the center of a lawsuit, is the two runners in Connecticut, uh, Andrea Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller, who are both young trans girls, um, and they're also young girls of color. And so it's also you know it's their story and the way that they are being treated is really bringing up a lot of uh, intersectional issues in our dealing with trans athletes and and the policing of people's bodies. And, you know, it, it's, it's a very multi-layered, um, story. And so that, you know, they, in, in getting to know them, I produced a documentary called changing the game, uh, which features actually Mac and Terry and Andrea, along with one other athlete, um, to, to just sort of humanize the stories of trans athletes and trans youth. And, uh, you know, I think again, going back to that education piece, like it's just the lack of education. People don't know who trans people are and have these horrible stereotypes about, about who we are. And, you know, the more that we can have even podcasts like this, right. Just to like hear me talk as a, just have a conversation with you can help change people's understanding about what it means to be trans. That's what I hope I can do. And I hope I have more transgender people on the show. There's one that I forgot to mention that I'm, that I feel bad that I didn't mention off the top and that's Harrison Brown. That's another mm -hmm. one I feel, I'm sorry, Harrison. I want you on the show very badly. I feel horrible that I didn't mention that before and I should have. That's another incredibly powerful one 
in in this space. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's, there's going to be many, many others, but those are the ones that off the top of my head that I can think about that have impacted that me and how I view this. Yeah. Because, as I said, as an out bisexual man, I look at the world differently than mm-hmm. other people do. But even then, my knowledge of this issue is not where it needs to be. And I'm ashamed to say I haven't watched that documentary yet. But since we're all holed up in our houses, we have a chance <laughs> to do that. Um, I, I apologize that I haven't done that yet, but I will very shortly. It's it's not distributed yet, so okay. it's a so that no worries I there. The previews for the documentary yet. And yeah. I should. I should but so also, you you said you're a hockey person, right? I am definitely a hockey person. Yes. Yeah, and and just to like reemphasize, you know, Harrison's story was so groundbreaking, as along with um, uh, with Jessica, uh, trans woman in in hockey, and you know, I think that um, it's really important to to mention that because it really highlights that there's not just one way to be a transgender athlete. There's, you know, Harrison's story of knowing that he was trans and continuing to play in the women's league uh, and being respected by his teammates and the coaches and having, uh, you know, play-by-play announcers use the correct pronouns and correct name. Uh, That moment, you know, can't be understated of saying, like, showing people that it's okay to be who you are. Um, So, yeah, it was a, it was a real, it was awesome to work with Harrison as he was coming out and through his transition of, you know, being able to, he, he exposed a whole new group of people and particularly hockey people, which oh, while, yeah. <laughs> which One is super important jokes on this show is how horrible hockey is with these issues. And I cannot imagine if he tried to play male hockey as a transitioning, um, from female to male, that would have been, and that's no offense to Harrison. It would have been an utter disaster because the hockey people have no clue how to deal with any of this. And yeah. I, you know, it's, he, the amazing thing is for, as you mentioned, and the play-by-play thing, like as a play-by-play announcer myself, getting that correct, I've seen on play-by-play forums, like somebody mentioned transgender athletes, like what do we do with the pronouns? And I said, whatever they say they use, they use. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's so important. Getting that right is as fundamental as getting someone's name right. You yeah, know? Exactly. But it's not something you think about because it was something that's automatic. It's something that's ingrained in your brain. And then this comes around and you have to... And it was it was like somebody who identifies as they or them, and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's tricky for announcers because of the habits we have. But it's something we have to do, and we owe it to these people to mm-hmm. that we do it that way. And that's a story that I that I saw that that, and I know I'm going to come across that in the future. And it's going to be something that, even though I would describe myself as somebody who cares about this community and wants to learn about this community, it's something I'm going to have to train my brain to do. And it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to do my best, even if we all make mistakes, and we're all going to make mistakes. So. It's amazing that I had you on, Chris, and I was nervous, and I hope this went as well as I was dreaming in my head it would because I have never interviewed a trans athlete before on this show, and I hope I interview many more. And this show has been, of course, an amazing, like, enlightening for me and hopefully enlightening for all of you to learn about the experience. But I want to get you out of here on this. Where do you want to see the transgender athlete in the next coming years? You're still fighting against these states and these horrible bills, and hopefully many of them get killed and most of them end up getting killed. But where do you want to see the transgender athlete in the next couple of years? What is the next step for the transgender athlete? You know, I think for us, it's just continuing to have the confidence and the and the uh, self understanding to know what we like to do and and the fact that we belong where we say we, you know, in the category that we say that we identify with. Um, I want every transgender athlete to 
know that it's possible to be your authentic self and continue to play the sports that you love. Uh, transition does not look one singular way for any person. So to have the examples of, you know, myself or Harrison Brown, you know, people can look to us and and see a possibility for themselves. And I want trans athletes to know it is okay to continue to play sports. Um, and, and in doing so, you will face discrimination and you will face lawmakers or policymakers who will attempt to per, perhaps attempt to keep us out of sport for a lack of understanding. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we are humans, we are athletes, and uh, we deserve the same opportunities as as our peers. And so, you know, in the future, I, I just hope that as there's more visibility of trans athletes today, uh, more people will will know that they can be their authentic selves and continue to play sports. I hope so. And certainly the work you've done has made a, quite a bit of progress on that front. Where can people find you on social media? Oh, awesome. Uh, mostly on Instagram and also on Twitter for policy stuff. And it's at the Chris Mosier. Um, and I'm sure you'll link it up in the show notes or Absolutely. on. Oh, be on I'll, I'll plug it on Twitter. What else do we have to plug? Perfect. Also, uh, for any sort of information about policies and advocacy about trans people in sport, go to transathlete.com, and that's transathlete, all one word, and one just singular athlete, no S at the end. So transathlete.com for policy information, for basic terminology and concepts, and if anyone is listening to this and is a part of a sports organization that doesn't have a policy for trans athletes yet, please contact me and I will help your organization make one because, uh, you know, we need to have these things in place proactively in a, in a positive and inclusive way, as opposed to maybe facing a lawsuit later on. Uh, yeah. And I also want to mention, cause we've talked about trans women of color and I would be remiss if my friend Connor Mertens, if I didn't mention it, people at Stonewall, many of them were trans women of color. He says that all the time. I, mm -hmm. I didn't mention that on the way out and, if, he, if I didn't, I probably would have gotten a, a note, even though Connor is probably right now trapped in quarantine because he lives in a place that is horrible right now with the coronavirus. But anyway, uh, neither here nor there. Had to mention that. Chris, thank you for being on. It's one of the most amazing privileges I've had of interviewing somebody like you. And thank you for doing all that you have done for so many people and making the lives better for so many people. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. Stay safe. <laughs>